Jean Jeans had more in store for us. While Diane had not been clued in to the secret of his identity, the two still found time to work together, even if her presence became more of a hindrance at times. But that was about to change with the arrival of a new friend. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. This is this is going to be a weird one because I know we talked about last episode that Martian Manhunter got a new editor. And I think there's some things that we need to talk about with that new editor in place. I think some decisions were made that for good or for ill were made and we have to now deal with the consequences of those actions. Um, we're going to be dealing with the year 1963. We're going to be ending in December 1963, but starting in January. Um, there's just a there's just a cacophony of madness and a weird sort of cavalcade <laughs> of nonsense that we have to deal with at this point. So we're just going to jump right in. And I know Joanne is keeping her eye on the on the you know stopwatch again because we have about 12 issues to cover uh, solely of Detective Comics again. Martian Manhunter has not jumped out of his uh, usual mag. I believe Jack Miller is the writer for all of these again. Mm-hmm. Boy, howdy, do I wish he was still writing Aquaman and we were reading Aquaman and not Martian Manhunter. <laughs> but if if I'm not mistaken, it is Jack Miller for all of these. Uh, I think there's one issue, uh, number 320, uh, DC Wikia says somebody else wrote it. That was uh, the Golden Eagle one. Yeah, the one that was actually well written. That kind of rang as a Bill Finger issue if I was, you know, if I had to put money down on who wrote a better detective comic, it was probably Bill Finger. Uh, it wasn't. It was an Bob Haney, who I do not remember. Bob, oh, what? no, Bob Haney. We've read some of his stuff before. I think he was a Batman stand-in occasionally on the, in the Golden Age, if not. But I've the name rings a bell. Uh, joined the DC writing staff around 54, but was writing for the Brave and the Bold. So maybe not Golden Age, but probably Batman. Okay, so he's probably... He probably wrote a Brave and the Bold story that we, we passed around at some point when we, when we covered that. Uh, all right, so we're going to start in Detective Comics number 311, January 1963, Happy New Year. Um, a, in, an interdimensional warp is opened up in the city and a couple of aliens come out and Martian Manager has to deal with them and bring them back to their home dimension while a police officer from that dimension also is trying to aid him. At the same time that all of this is going on, a, I mean, you ever watch the Yogi Bear show? No. It's Boo Boo without the necktie and the collar. It's the tiny bear next to Yogi Bear. His, the na- the bear's name is Boo Boo. It just looks yeah. like that, but put antenna on him, and maybe like he hasn't slept in two days because he's got big bags under his eyes. That's what Zook, the tiny alien bear, looks like. Zook will become important forever. Zook is in more issues of Martian Manhunter stories than I think Thomas from Green Lantern is in. He's gotta be. I, mm, I'm i gonna look... Because uh, when I'm actually curious about this because when I, I I looked stuff up and I was only seeing, seeing him for the first couple, but maybe it was a New Earth versus like New 52 thing. Yeah, I don't... No, I'm just saying now in these stories, in the oh, Silver Age, oh, yeah, in this year... Yes. Yeah, he shows up more often than Thomas Kalmako. Yeah, it just it is absolutely, you know, what if we gave him a kid sidekick? I will say this on um scale of Doiby Dickles to Scrappy Doo. <laughs> Zook is squarely in the center and he's not quite annoying, but he's very childlike in the sense that he could be like he's oh no, this is a better range. Topo to Doiby Dickles. 
he's 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 effective and he's useful in different scenarios but he doesn't have a catchphrase like Dwayne Dickles did or but he has a an affected um speech situation but he's also incredibly useful so he's he's speaking topo but he's also just god awful slapstick um laugh track humor and it's going to be a problem for the rest of this this is going to be a centerpiece of our discussion but oh good yeah i think that's i think that is a decent <laughs> that is a decent way of setting the ground there not uh yeah. childlike but not I have written down like not baby Batman. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, he's not as bad as as Batman getting de-aged. But yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna have some weird times here. <laughs> so that's uh, detective. Uh, that was Detective Comics number three eleven. We're gonna move to Detective Comics number three twelve, February nineteen sixty three. This issue is dedicated to showing Zook's abilities as he helps Martian Manhunter um, stop some crimes. Zook can make himself hot, therefore the things around him you know are heated up he can also make himself cold and the things around him are cold are frozen uh he can uh, track people with his head antenna like he can track their electric signature their electromagnetic signature sure we'll go with that that's fine that's science i guess he can fly and uh, he can make himself very thin or kind of squish himself down to get into small, tight spaces. Those are the things that Zook can do. Which is, that one's actually a little interesting because that power stops getting used pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, he only really uses it to get in and out of the little uh, hideaway that him and Manhunter have. Which, by the way, now Martian Manhunter has a Martian cave with, you know, police scanners and a map and projection equipment and computers where he keeps Zook and teaches him about Earth. I was trying to remember what it felt like, and it's the Challenger's hideout, isn't it? It's a little bit like the Challenger's hideout, yes. Um, or I would say it's closer to Aquaman's Aquahobo hut. Yeah. Because it's just, a, it's just a cave. It's an undressed cave where the Challengers actually live in the Rocky Mountains with like a hangar bay and an interior and stuff like that. This is just, I put machinery in a, in a rock. That's true. You know, it's, you know, the basement of the Arrow Cave. Uh, Detective Comics number 313, March 1963. Martian Manhunter faces a guy with a magic wand that makes inanimate objects come to life and fight him. That's kind of neat. Um, Detective Comics number 314, April 1963. A Saturnian criminal, uh, someone from, a criminal from Saturn, impersonates John Jones, whom he zaps and gives amnesia to. Zook must then help uh john jones remember that he's martian manhunter and the saturnian uh lawmen show up and they arrest the bad guy with the help of martian manhunter which also cons uh coincidentally helps solidify martian manhunter's secret identity as not john jones in front of diane mead because he's fighting john jones who happened to turn into a saturnian uh detective comics number 315 may 1963 Martian Manhunter uh, must fight a master of disguise sort of showman, a guy who basically his, his stage act is turning into, into different disguises very quickly, um, who has also been using those disguises to rob places and be a thief. And using his own shape-shifting abilities, he, you know, changes into the other disguises that the guy has and fights him on stage, which is kind of neat, and I kind of liked that. But it was also very... You could just beat him up in your normal form and not put on a bunch of disguises to do this but you know showmanship counts i suppose on mars uh 
Detective Comics number 316, June 1963. Martian Manhunter must fight criminals who get powers. A, a very standard Superman set. Uh, from a meteor's radiation. Sure, the radiation wears off at a certain time and they lose their powers as well. Diane, however, gets powers at one point for a bit and she's the most useful she's ever been in the plot when she's protecting Martian Manhunter who loses his powers due to the meteor's radiation. Um, but he finds out that when he turns into John Jones, he's immune to the radiation and he gets powers again as John Jones. We start to get the the theme that whenever he turns into something or someone else other than Martian Manhunter into other than Jean Jean's his Martian form he either isn't weak to fire or he doesn't have his Martian powers or he's not affected by anything else that his Martian form is affected by and I don't know when we decided that this was a thing but suddenly it's now a thing and I think it's in an effort to get him to not be so lame <laughs> Because I feel like that was an editorial decision where, like, obviously if a human man is weak to fire, that's a little bananas. But also that kind of heightens the drama that he always has to, like, be aware of fire no matter what. But it seems to be a thing now that they're saying, like, whenever he's in his human form, he's okay, but he also has no powers. I don't know what that means or what that's about. I, I agree that I don't know when it started being... It, it feels like an editorial mandate of here's how it's going to be we're going to stabilize this is the rule this is the rules of this character uh and i don't know when it was introduced and i would be a lot more annoyed if it feels like it's executed well like it's used for it, having been established as a rule it is used well in constructing the finales of these stories is my take at least it's not done clumsily or any more clumsily that these stories are written it's just a strange decision that wasn't mm -hmm. there from the start. This is the first time I think we've seen power creep in the opposite direction that just happened. You know, it, it was never a, as you know, as a, you know, when I'm John Jones, I have no powers. It was kind of a moment of like, thank God I was John Jones. Otherwise I'd be weak to fire. It was like, what the fuck? When did that happen? Like, I don't, I, we read these yeah. fairly closely, close, closer than probably most people would read these on a given day. And I don't remember when that was ever established. It was like a silent <laughs> retcon. Yeah, it was a, a silent retcon. The worst kind. <laughs> uh, Detective Comics number 317, July 1963. Martian Manhunter fights a guy who discovers powerful robots from space and is using them to steal things. And he just stops him from doing that because that's what he does in the comic. In 12 pages or less, your bad guy is defeated for free. Uh, Detective Comics number 318, August 1963. Uh, Zook gets amnesia, and uh, criminals use him to fight Martian Manhunter. Hey, folks, can you guess where this happens? The fucking circus. <laughs> Nothing good ever happens at the circus. If you take anything away from this podcast from now until you stop listening to it or Matt and I get too tired of doing it, remember this. Nothing good ever happens at the circus. You either get amnesia Animals get loose and kill somebody. Someone's threatening the zoo for protection money. Your parents will get killed and you'll get adopted by a man who never got therapy for himself and turned to a life of vigilante justice. But bad things happen at the circus. Don't go to a circus. Nothing good ever happens at the circus, including Zook getting amnesia and fighting Martian Manhunter. 
Uh, Detective Comics number 319, September 1963. Martian Manhunter steps through a time warp in a cave, like you do, um, and transports him back to uh, medieval England, uh, 1463 specifically. Not really medieval, but uh, an anachronistic time. Uh, and it's somewhere. It's not specified, but it sure as shit ain't the United States in 1463 to have, you know, medieval feudal lords and castles, because that's not how that works. Um, he helps a ruler quell a rebellion by an evil guy who has taken the throne, un- right, uh, you know, unlawfully. And uh, this is this was supposed to be John Jones's vacation. Well, he was on vacation elsewhere looking at caves. He's like, oh, that's a cool cave. I'll go back as Martian Manhunter and check it out so that I can ignore all the tool gu- uh, the tour guide's warnings that this is a dangerous cave because I'm a superhero and I like to flout the rules, much like Superman. When he goes into the cave, he steps through a time warp and he's elsewhere. And, you know, I wouldn't have so much of a problem with it if the time warp didn't also teleport him elsewhere in space. If it was just like, yeah, you're now in 1463 and wherever you are, United States, and that's cool. But, like, it teleported him specifically to a land with, you know, a barony and a castle and a prince and knights. I think it sent him to France. I think he's in Auvergne. He goes to France? Even I, better. Yeah. <laughs> it's. He, try, he crosses an entire ocean, fights a French rebellion, and then never learns French that whole time. There's never a moment where he's like, that man's speaking French. Of course not. Why would he? Uh, this isn't. I don't know. What was it? World's Finest where Batman and Robin constantly and Superman constantly traveled in time and had to pretend to be different people because they were like, oh, it'd be weird if a bunch of guys in stupid outfits were seen next to the three musketeers. But don't worry. We won't take off our masks, but we'll dress like musketeers. And that's not going to be confusing for anybody. Yeah. God, I am still mad about that Aladdin's lamp pun. (laughs) I I have not gotten over that. Detective Comics number 320, October 1963. A criminal posing as a French policeman attempts to get Jones to track down his competition in town uh, for a golden... Was it the golden... Is it a golden owl? Is it a golden uh, something? You know, I think the story is called the Golden Eagle. I don't remember if that was what it was in there. It's a golden eagle or some sort of golden bird of prey. Um the criminal kind of outs himself when he kind of sends Jones on a wild goose chase and Zook stumbles upon the fact that he's a fake. Um, but while John Jones, Martian Manhunter, is helping this, you know, foreign police officer who he's being very polite and helping, um, Zook is saving the day around town because he's like, I have to help this guy and it's really hard for me to, like, get away to do Martian Manhunter stuff. Zook, go do stuff. Zook gets a, a big head because he's been saving the day very effectively and pretty thoroughly and Martian Manhunter's like hey don't forget you're a sidekick you're not Robin you can be written you can be written out of my story and Zook's like I'm sorry and Martian Manhunter's like you, you better now read your fan mail Zook gets tons of fan mail what the f- how who's writing to the cave the, the Manhunter cave you know dear for Zook care of Manhunter cave thanks postal service here's five stamps because I don't know where it is I mean, Do they have a P.O. box? That's why we need the USPS, though. Like, you think about it. It's clearly out a little ways. It's not in the burbs. The, if oh, you're yeah. Going to, if you're going to deliver to any kind of rural area or even, like, uh, city outskirts, you need the USPS. Do you think FedEx is going to deliver there cheap? No, that's going to be 20 bucks minimum. I, I like to think in our weirdly mundane universe that you and I are creating, while Aquaman goes to the public library to check his email, 
to help people out to answer Craigslist ads for the New England townships. Martian Manhunter must have a P.O. box. And he's like, if you just want to send me a letter, send it to the local post office and I'll pick it up. And very surreptitiously, or probably invisibly, he picks all the letters up. And I bet he's pissed one day when they're all for Zook. <laughs> just absolutely mad. Just absolutely livid. Uh, Detective Comics number 321. November, uh, and uh, actually, before we... We're going to go back to 320, which was the criminal, the criminal posing as a police officer. Honestly... That was a good issue. And I think you and I can agree on the fact that it was like, oh, a double cross. I did not see that coming. And I thought it was really cool that he was helping a foreign police officer and they had this whole thing going on. And it was like, yeah, he he has to disappear to go Martian Manhunter and stop a crime. But Zook is also, you know, pulling pulling his own weight and his own weight and picking up the slack. That was great. And then I was like, oh, crap. You know, the guy's the guy was a thief the whole time and it was it was misdirection. Well written. Good job. Mm -hmm. You know on that one you know jack miller could learn a thing or two from that issue but he probably won't as evident by the next you know couple issues detective comics number 321 november 1963 uh, a creature from an old space capsule that is buried behind and kind of under the martian cave we're gonna just keep calling it weird things until it sticks um hatches and uh, causes havoc as it changes shape and fights martian manhunter to different it basically changes its its physiological makeup per the medium in which Martian Manhunter is fighting it. So it's a land creature at first, and then it turns into a water creature, and then it turns into an, uh, an airborne creature. Um, and then Zook figures out a way to, to get rid of it by slapping some sort of goop that it finds inside the capsule on it. And it, like, de-evolves the creature into nothing. And you know what? I'm going to say they kill that thing. Oh, yeah. it's That's a, that's a body count for Manhunter and Zook. The the line is, I, I have the line in front of me, as I suspected, it was able to go through a limited number of changes before its lifespan ended. Yeah, they killed, yep. a, they killed a thing. Manhunter straight up murdered a giant. And yeah, I mean, look, this is one of those situations where we talk about with the Challengers of the Unknown, where they kill big monsters. When do we start talking about, like, when do kaijus become sentient and when do we have to, like, start talking about the fact that, like, Oh, that creature can be reasoned with, like the Green Lantern construct that he sleeps, like he sleep dreams and sleep creates. That one was kind of sentient and had wants and desires if it didn't eat. Um, this is a kaiju, and I kind of feel bad for it because it was just doing its own thing, but also it was causing havoc. But they straight kill that thing. Yeah. And I feel like if we haven't counted it for the, the challengers, and I'm kind of like, you know, body count crazy because we haven't had a body count tick in a while i feel like this there was a way to get rid of this without killing it though clearly it was contained in some way before and they just chose to to do the the lethal thing i don't know i feel like if there was if this thing was was trapped in a capsule there was a way to get it back in there that and i feel like this is an instance where the method uh that the writer has chosen to resolve this story took precedence over any question of would would they try to uh subdue it non-lethally because the the way it goes is that they're able to force it to go through more of those like uh changes that i sort of mentioned and once it ran out of once it used a certain amount of those hey that's your that's how many you get in lifespan you're dead it what was uh the name of the villain uh multi-man multi-mode man oh multiple man yeah, yeah. the 
the guy the guy who every time he died he turned into a different person yeah and there was the point where it was like well this is my last one as because it's that that kind of that specific resolution it feels like oh as a result we're not we're just not even gonna talk about lethality or even like it's almost as though the writing is framing it as we didn't even take action against this thing we just hey we we stopped it and that was the end of it they they didn't try to find a way to contain it they they found a way to to deal with it yeah and that was that that's kind of the way that that it seemed like i think you're on the right track there with there was no way of trying to deal with it peaceably or peaceably it was just like does this kill it perfect it feels like the story is framing this less as how do i overcome this and more use key on door this is the interaction the the logical combination of things it's not how i how do i defeat this thing it's oh this is the thing i'm supposed to do yeah i think you're right uh our last issue that we're going to cover is detective comics number 322 december 1963 a batman villain arnold hugo attempts to make trouble for martian manhunter by stealing his powers through use of a machine that he creates he's kind of a little bit of a hector hammond situation where he increases his intelligence and his brain goes really large which makes his head get really big as well i guess but the uh the fun thing is this is the first time we've seen this in getting martian manhunter's powers he also gets martian manhunter's weakness and martian manhunter and zuki use fire to disable him and capture him and then the powers wear off, and he is handed off to Batman, which is the first time we've seen, you know, Batman in a bit outside of Justice League. And he's like, "Oh, thanks for getting my guy who's outside of Gotham." I had to Google Arnold Hugo. He is a Batman villain. He only shows up a couple times. I think his final appearance is in like 1968. Um, not to be confused with Hugo Strange, but uh, he's just a different guy. He's just another sciencey sort of bad dude who shows up in Batman comics. Um, that is the end of our coverage. So we have a couple things. We have a new usage of his powers that state that as he is John Jones, he is immune to his weakness, but he also has no powers other than shape-shifting back to Martian Manhunter. Um, he has a Martian cave now, which is a hideout for him to do his, you know, superheroing. And he has a sidekick, Zook, who is fairly effective and less... Um, bumbling than one would imagine a sidekick would be at this time he is kind of like robin or speedy or kid flash but much more played up for children and very very out of place in a mm -hmm. comic that has traditionally been noir and detective-y with a little bit of sci-fi his absolute cartoon look is just really throwing me and stylistically not the decision i would have picked but it is very strange, and it also kind of works, and I'm a little mad about that. Um, I don't want it to work, but it is actually making the comics more interesting. And it is something that Martian Manhunter needed, is, a, is some kind of foil to play off of, other than just being stoically Martian Manhunter, and oh, that silly Diane. It's now he's got a... a comedic sidekick who also can help him so he's not alone he can he can interact off of somebody the bit about the cartoonishness uh there's one other sidekick who is cartoony and out of place in that way and was it topo who there who was it It was Do it was doiby dickles in the golden age doiby dickles was decidedly super weird looking i feel like some someone in the silver age uh has a 
super cartoony sidekick and like Topo's occasionally Quisp? got the anime eyes. Is it Quisp? Quisp. Quisp. Aquaman with the little the little water sprite guy who like totally is super weirdly out of place and it's just like yeah we've got this weird sort of oh wow yeah yeah it was, it's Quisp isn't it huh yeah okay that that fits it's either Quisp or, or Mixia Spitalik yeah uh, this is a character who it could have easily been a Mister Mixia Spitalik uh, but yeah it looks like Quisp is sort of certainly in that vein like some of the yeah some of the panels now that i'm looking at them quisp is absolutely that sort of cartoonish character especially when the when the fish are drawn so stylistically correct like they may not be completely naturally anatomically correct but they are drawn specifically to look like the fish that they are meant to be for quisp to look like the claymation christmas um Oh god. What is it like a like snow miser guy? Yeah. It is it's bizarre to see him next to a frankly somewhat realistic octopus doing fantastic things. Topo has the eyes sometimes, but by and large Topo it looks like an octopus. Yeah, he doesn't look like Jabberjaw or anything like that, but he just looks like an octopus. And that's I think the problem with with Zook. Zook looks like Boo Boo from Yogi Bear got photoshopped into old comics and no one was consulted about the stylistic clash. I don't know. Zook apparently is here to stay and we just have to live with it. For for a little bit. So I, I did look around and it, it seems like we get we get him very consistently for another like fifteen issues or so and then just gone. Yeah. Alright. We'll get Zook for more issues than we'll get Martian Manhunter's parents in Mars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How much does that sting? Zook has appeared more times than Mars. Oh. Zook is... Mars isn't even mentioned in these stories. Yeah. There's nothing about him, like, wanting to get back. There, there's not even anything about other Martians. Wow. Nope. Ooh. <laughs> and that's that's one of the things, is... Zook and the power thing that we talked about where in his human form, Jean-Jean uh, Jean-Jean's isn't affected by fire in the same way. There is more being done to make these stories internally consistent in the sense that the the rules are the same and the same elements are showing up again and again. So you have that kind of, it's not world building, but we we talked about this at some point of like the world consistency, even if there isn't necessarily world building, there is no serialization. Yep. There's no uh, continuity being built, but there's repetition. But yeah, uh, it is important to keep those two, uh, those two kinds of world building slash uh, ongoing story separate, because certainly this isn't doing any kind of long-term storytelling. No, there's no, there's no plan for the future here. It is just how many issues can we, do we have and what can we put in them? Mm -hmm. And you called this one out earlier and I, I want to like spend a little more time dwelling on it. The change in editorship. So this is uh, Whitney Ellsworth, I believe. Yep. Whitney Ellsworth, uh, who has been doing Superman stories. And one of the things I had sort of flagged in as I first read through was there were a couple panels that seemed very explicitly like this is 
this is a Superman pose. Like, I have a picture of... Let me scroll my way through. So, John Johns is holding the two... I think they're Saturnians. Uh, uh, actually, no, the aliens from the first story. Uh with the crazy hair and the yellow uh, uniform and deep red skin. And they're like, Jean is sort of behind them and has grabbed their arms and is kind of sort of comfortably flexed, I guess would be a way to put it. Kind of leaning back. And it, for whatever reason, my brain just went, that's a Superman pose. And there were a couple others throughout here where kind of the, the gratuitous displays of not just like, oh, I can destroy this rock, but like lifting it in that way that I associate associate with Superman stories. Uh, the, the display of power and us taking a moment to marvel at it as the reader. Uh, and... Of course, now that now that you point out the edit and remind me that the editorship changed, like that makes sense. It's not a different penciler, but it's I could imagine Whitney Ellsworth like looking over the penciler's shoulder and being like, make it more like Superman. Do you have uh, more notes or did we cover a bit of everything or do you have some more that you'd like to delve into? I've got a bit more. So I think I think we need to talk Zook. Uh, I think we need to, if we must like more than just like, okay. Like we talked through some of the elements of Zook, but I want to talk about, do we, how do we feel on Zook as a whole? Like my take on him has been that I, I don't like so many of his elements, but he works, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I don't really like how he was introduced. I don't really like his visual style as the function the function that he serves for the comic and for the character 100% was needed and works and that's what makes me so upset <laughs> i wish we had a better character i yeah. wish this was his brother yeah i wish this was john jones's brother or diane got like a a a, a level up and she was written better and she got in on the secret and now she's his sidekick and now she goes with him and is more effective. Literally anything but this. But if this is what we have, unfortunately, I will say that the quality of the comics has increased. Yeah, I guess the way... Like, there was a specific thing you said there. Like, if Zook were replaced by, like, a 90s version of Lois Lane, the the person who can sort of feed some information to Superman of, like, hey, go check this out, and isn't being written as the damsel in distress like all of that would work so much better if it were coming from diane than zook because zook's whole like a lot of the time zook's thing is hey i can track where they're at with my electric antennae and track them down yeah if diane was doing those things it'd be even better yeah and i guess on the plus side like diane i think she shows up in it feels like she shows up in more stories. I didn't go through and count, but like we we now have the trifecta in of Zook and uh, John Jones and Diane, like as sort of the status quo, I guess. It's yeah. It is true that Diane is aware of Zook mainly because he keeps showing up the Martian Manhunter. She is not directly involved with him, but she does kind of like do things alongside him. Mm-hmm. The problem is. 
Zook is now more effective than than Diane is as a cop. Other things that about him that I just kind of want to call out as because I was trying to figure out like why it worked for me, even if, like I said, the taken as a taken as a whole, independent of how how he is written in any given moment. Like, I, no, he's not the kind of character I'd like. But his baby talk is like it's different. It's I, not me. He says things like, I sorry. It's it's different and it's slightly more adult, so it doesn't immediately turn me off like baby Batman or something. It it doesn't hit the same groan factor. It unfortunately reads a little bit more like someone who doesn't have a fairly good grasp of the use of pronouns of the English language hmm. over somebody who just doesn't understand speech. Fair. Yeah. It's somebody learning English versus someone who doesn't know how to speak. So here's the big reason that when I was trying to figure this out, the big reason that I was, I realized I was okay with Zook. So Zook is usually helpful, but he's not decisive. Like uh, Zook helps uh, Jean find the crook. Then Jean fights it out. Or when Jean is about to lose a fight, like Zook hops in and he defends him. He gives uh, Jean a chance to stand up and win the fight. Like there's a point where uh, Jean is, I think he's disabled by, he's disabled by something. And uh, actually, I think he might have been in a human form and he's about to get shot. And Zook jumps in front and like melts the bullets before they can hit him. Uh, And then he isn't involved in the final conflict outside of that. It's the, okay, he buys him a second and then gets out of the way. Zook doesn't win the fight himself. The comparison I realized, Zook is Tuxedo Mask. <laughs> like, he oh shows God, up right. and he, like, catches Usagi as she's about to fall off the building. And you can do this, Sailor Moon. You, I believe in you. Our love is stronger than this. Uh He's not. He's never the one who wins the fight, um, except for times where something is clearly wrong with the uh, with the legendary silver crystal. But he is helpful and doesn't get in the way. Yeah, he's he's additive. Yes. Yeah, the, we've only had the one story that was like Zook is the problem, and even then, like the the bit about Zook with the fan mail, like it was. From the splash page in that, I was expecting that to be the story of, oh, the super, the sidekick is getting too big for his britches. Uh, but that wasn't even the focus of the story, and it resolved with him not being humbled, but like putting in the extra effort, like, okay, I I messed up. Let I'm going to help Martian Manhunter. I'm going to uh, tail this guy and be helpful in the time where I'm needed. Yeah. Which is actually something I want to call out because I'm I'm gonna make a statement that applies m- probably more to how I remember stories like this going than I haven't like vetted this by looking through stories like this. But we do get stories not infrequently in the Silver Age where uh, the sidekick is something changes in the social order. The sidekick gets the chance to be independent uh, and Robin doesn't need Batman, uh, something like that. Uh, And the way those stories often feel is like they are about a social order, a correct social order uh, where the sidekick, the sidekick is needs to be reminded that no, you can't do this on your own. And 
I'm gonna keep that like that lens for the next time I see one of those stories show up and see how they read to me. Conversely, well, conversely, you do also get stories like what we covered in the last Green Arrow coverage was Roy doing his job pretty well until he got overwhelmed. It wasn't that he couldn't do the job. Mm -hmm. It was that the job was too hard for him to make the criminals think Green Arrow was still around. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you like like you said, there is a there are stories of Robin trying to do a thing on his own and then needing Batman's help. But then you also get. Kid Flash's stories are all about him doing his job. Yeah. Never does Flash show up in a Kid Flash story. He even sends Kid Flash to go do a thing he was supposed to do with the elongated man. So there are there there there's checks and balances there, but I think you're right. There are stories wherein a character tries to go do a thing but is reminded you're too young. And I would be kind of interested to see which stories those show up in because one of the things we've kind of touched on is how more realized the characters are in uh, in the more serious stories, uh, spe specifically in Green Lantern and Flash. Uh, but as a result, it's hard for me to imagine those writers even making one of those stories that's just, oh, this look at this sidekick getting too big for his britches. Yeah, I just kind of wonder, like, if... If you could even write a story that felt tonally consistent with Flash, that was that. I don't know. Like, not a thoroughly developed thought. One of the one of the things about us being a sort of conversational podcast, uh, and frankly, not not having pre conversations about what we're going to cover, is that we sometimes have these things that occur to us, uh, and we'll just need to see how how they shake out as we read more and think about things more uh but it's an interesting thing that i want to i'm gonna have that in the back of my mind yeah and i think it's it's part of the the fun of this podcast is we get to have those moments of of dissection in real time as opposed to full feces written out and just vomiting at you and then we can kind of come to a conclusion you know, in in the midst of it, as opposed to having full, you know, fully formed ideas, and then being like, and that's what I think, and then neither of us being able to really refute that. Mm -hmm. I mean, product of plot is still one of my favorite things to come out of this podcast, yeah. and that was oh, that yeah. was part of the moment for you, right? Oh yeah, purpose of plot, Swiss Army Science was yours. That's my favorite. Swiss Army Science is one of my favorite things that we've we've figured out. It's just like yeah, there sometimes there are characters who are Swiss Army scientists. Um, purpose of plot is this just needs to happen i do like the instigation nation that was kind of one of my favorites from the last episode uh was the the female sidekick characters that are there to instigate the plot but also not be damsels in distress is pretty great i love that you know uh carol ferris and iris uh and june you know we're n we're not technically involved but we're still here and we're not going to be kidnapped <laughs> it's like yeah that's pretty great um, but, you know, there are things that I have learned about comics through weird deep dives like that we do. And it's it's been fun to kind of share that with folks. And frankly, for me, it's been helpful to, to kind of formulate my own writing and, you know, look back at stuff and do my own post postmortems on my own work. Nice, man. And 
with that, is there anything else that you want to go over, or shall we head to recommendations? I think I think that there's only so much we can talk about with these, and I think we're we're getting a little <laughs> bit more comfortable cutting the episodes short when there really isn't that much content to to deal with. Mm-hmm. So I think with that, I think we should go to recommendations. I know I have recommended this before, but I'm going to do it again. It might have been a long time ago when I did recommend it. I'm going to recommend the anime Food Wars, mainly because the more I've been watching it, the more I've been talking with folks about it. Um, it is a very fascinating um, satire of the shonen um, genre of anime in the sense that they made... Uh, for those of you who've never seen the, the show, it's basically the Iron Chef television show from Food Network, but like if you mixed it with Dragon Ball Z. It's very fun. It starts off a little fan servicey in the way of to like kind of be a little bit shock value. So, you know, if you're, you know, uncomfortable with some nudity at the very beginning, I wouldn't watch it. Um, but that kind of tapers off as the show becomes more and more popular and has more and more seasons where they realize they don't have to like deal with that. Um, it's on Crunchyroll right now. Uh, but it is mainly about people finding themselves in their own personal styles and food. And you see some interesting things about food. You learn stuff from the show itself. So it's mildly educational as well as entertaining. Um, you can find the recipes for the uh, food that they make in the show online. And you can try it yourself. Uh, I recently made apple bacon risotto for dinner the other night. And it was really good. So there's some stuff in there that's really interesting and some good, cool, experimental things for folks who are looking for a wholesome show that is also a little bit ridiculous and fun for the sake of just trying to find something new to watch in all of this nonsense that we're going through currently. It's called Food Wars. All right. And on my end, uh, just to close the loop first, uh, I think I think I recommended Final Fantasy VII Remake on the last episode, and I... Yes, go go get that game. Good game. Good, okay. <laughs> yep. Um, second off, uh, Sailor Moon, yeah. So we're watching Sailor Moon Crystal. Uh, there are three seasons oh, yeah. of it, and we're, like, it's just such a bingeable show. And it's it's doing the, it's kind of like Dragon Ball Z Kai in the sense that it is, what if we cut out all the filler, but it's actually like it is its own series like fresh animation and all that stuff uh, but it's also like they're short like they're already only like 20 30 or 23 minute episodes uh and it's like 13 14 episode seasons so it's it's going fast but it's made me think about these comics a lot as i'm reading and watching because it's like some of the gimmick comics, it's so unconcerned with anything material in the sense that, like, the thing I keep coming back to is the bad guy gets away. That just kind of happens. Yeah. There's no attempt to really justify it. It's just the bad guy swoops in and, well, uh, you you killed the minion of the week, but they were able to paralyze one of the sailor scouts before you were able to... And now I take them and I'm gone. And there's no attempt to justify it. There is no power level... Power level is even not, not the right word. There is no attempt to justify the... Diff- why this went the way it did it's just this is the fact and it works 
because it advances the the overall narrative. And specifically, the thing that the thing the thing that I kept coming back to is in in those stories, it is to the the lack of the lack of tactical focus is to serve the the overall narrative. Like we're just going to keep moving along. We are building through this plot line. And I think that's one of the reasons that things like that were so like the bullshit power moments with early uh, Martian Man- Manhunter stories were so frustrating was because there was that that same lack of grounding, lack of trying to make things make sense and feel like feel internally can feel consistent. But it wasn't in the service of anything. It wasn't so that there was an ongoing story. It wasn't, oh, because the focus is on the characters. It's just, no, that was done. That's just it. Uh, and to see something similar, but have it so clearly be in service of an, of the overall narrative of the season just is, it provides that perspective. Also, it really points out that things are so much, things are often so much better not necess- they don't even need to be smart if they have a really good score behind them. Yeah. <laughs> like, Music is powerful in, in very in pop stuff, yeah. And some of, some of the tracks in this version, like, I'm listening to the background music and it's like, oh, that, that almost sounds like One Winged Angel. Huh. Ooh. <laughs> like, the, not, not any of the rock versions, not even like this heavy symphonic versions, but like the the little bit of operaticness to it. It's just like what? It's it reminds me very much of there's a specific uh, backing theme that they'll play in Great British Baking Show when the time is running down, and for a second there, there's a particular bit that's like that sounds like something from Dragon Ball Fighters, and it that same kind of thing in this where it's like oh this. This gets me going. This is a little. This is serious business. All right, I'll I'll sit down and take it seriously. Serious baking business, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I think that's going to do it for us for the end of this episode. Next episode, if there are more than two or three issues, we're going to do the Metal Men. Oh yeah. Which is going to be great. And then after that, because the alphabet is fun. Uh, we're going to the supers. It's Karazorel and uh, Kal-El. So we're going to be covering Superman and Supergirl. And then after that, it's Wonder Woman. And then uh, we're back to Justice League. We move our goalposts again. Yeah. So that is where we will be headed in the future. We hope everybody is doing well. Be safe. We love you all. Have a good night. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Martian Manhunter, Diane, and Zook made an odd little family, but we were pleased to see that Manhunter's comics seemed the better for it. It was time to move on to a new family made of metal and science.